Emerald Podcast Series. Research that makes a difference. Hello, welcome to the Emerald Podcast Series. My name is Thomas and my guest today is Vasuki Shastri, the author of the notorious ESG, Business, Climate and the Race to Save the Planet. He has spent many years at the environmental, social and governance coalface itself, running ESG for major international banks in the City of London and as a former Associate Fellow in the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House. Thank you very, very much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here, Thomas. I guess as you wrote the book, The Notorious ESG, I must ask you, first of all, what does ESG stand for? I think in the current context, of course, ESG stands for many, many things. But let's get back to basics. ESG stands for Environmental Social Governance. It is a collection of standards, metrics, and KPIs, which is very, it's very much of a business buzzword, which essentially provides investors and the and society at large, I guess, uh, a set of indicators on how a particular company is doing across these three pillars. And obviously, ESG is very, very specific. It is data-driven and evidence-driven compared with other formulations we are seeing in the business world. For example, a lot of people talk about sustainability and uh, people seem to use sustainability and ESG interchangeably. But I think it's useful to emphasize that they are interrelated, but they are somewhat different. In my book, sustainability is all about a company's commitment or articulation of its real positioning as a responsible business. Company setting out to doing the right thing across environmental social governance factors, and there could be other factors. Obviously, financial sustainability is critical for business. So sustainability is a commitment. It's an articulation of what companies stand for. And that's why you see a lot of linkages between sustainability and purpose, for example. Whereas ESG really is a validation. It is the evidence, tangible evidence, that what the company is articulating in its sustainability framework, uh, uh, the company is able to evidence through data and facts. Right. So I think this is a very important distinction that, that kind of gets lost in all this noise uh, that we tend to hear about what EHG is all about and what sustainability is all about. Thank you very much for explaining that. And this will be something hugely familiar to some and really quite unknown to others. And I think it's an interesting question. How do you put a number on, for example, social responsibility? Yeah, I, I think a lot of companies have struggled this uh, with this over the years. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you can almost put a number and a metric against any business indicator. One example, let's take a large multinational high street garment distributor, right? You've got, you've got many of them in, in London and all over the world. Now, where do they source their garments from? They typically traditionally source this from developing countries. The reasons for this is, you know, wages are low. Production costs are significantly cheaper. They're able to keep the cost of production down and sell it to the general public. 
at, at a significantly low price compared with producing it in Europe or the US. One very, very common metric uh, that you can use on the social side, uh, which you referenced, is how many people do these companies uh, actually use in Bangladesh, or Sri Lanka, or Cambodia. Right? So if you have a manufacturing facility, say, with 1,000 garment workers, uh, then you immediately begin to drill down and try and figure out metrics. How much are they paid? What are their working conditions? What are the safety standards that this company is implementing? And we've had some horrific tragedies in the garment space. And, and that really has, particularly in Bangladesh over a decade ago, that really focused attention on building better social metrics so that headquarters can understand that if for some reason, as happened in Bangladesh, uh, the owner of that uh, garment factory shut all the doors and the windows, uh, you can take timely action. So I think uh, in any metric of business, you have to look at the facts, you have to look at the hard data. And anyone who says, and I've heard a lot of this commentary that easy to build metrics on the environmental side, there are a lot of qualitative judgments to be made on the governance side, which I think is a fair point. Uh, that is almost impossible to build metrics on the social side. And, you know, I, I kind of reject that thinking. It's a very interesting example with the garment business because that's something where the the consumer, the end consumer, can have a direct effect on the business and they can be influenced by, say, as they regard the morality of the business. That's quite unusual, isn't it? But this is certainly, you know, you, we've seen the convergence of greater consumer focus on for lack of a better definition, be on socially committed products in the sense that they want to be associated with brands that they believe are doing good and really truly are a positive force in this world. And, you know, you amplify this via social media, right? So if you've got a consumer on the high street who feels deeply aggrieved uh, buying a certain product, uh, who he or she feels uh, was not produced sustainably, this person can take uh, the grievance and the case in the public space via social media and amplify this and get a lot of other support from other consumers. So, you know, consumers really are the centerpiece of how consumer products are sold, branded, and reputation built on uh, these days. So companies that therefore are very, very focused now on what they would describe as sustainable sourcing. Uh, they take a great deal of pains to emphasize where a particular client didn't go to a coffee shop. Uh, there's a lot of uh, posters on where these coffee beans are uh, produced and the working conditions of uh, farm labor, for example. Uh, and, and really, so there's a convergence here between consumers wanting to be associated with these uh, good brands and at the same time there's greater attention on how products are manufactured and usually uh, the further away the products are manufactured thousands of miles away from where they are sold uh, there was a sense to two or three decades ago that you know you really couldn't get hard data on what is actually happening on the ground and that has changed dramatically that's very interesting. And I'm wondering from a company perspective, do many companies see this purely as just uh, defending the brand, brand reputation, or is there a bit more to it than that? Yeah, you get a mix of this. Obviously, uh, and my own experience 
here when I started on this ESG journey in London, uh, working for a major international bank, and this was more than 10 years ago, it, the focus was very much on reputation risk. The fact that a bank or a corporate entity getting linked with a country, for example, which is, which is probably uh, in the news for all the wrong reasons, uh, getting linked with a client, getting linked with the product itself. So how do you protect reputation risk? And then you need to take mitigating action. And that mitigating action very much fits into what should obviously take place under that institution's ESG framework. So it started off very much, and then there are many companies, unfortunately, who still look at ESG as as you know as a way to protecting reputation risk. At the same time, you've got a uh, you know you you've got many many large companies who have moved beyond the rhetoric, who moved beyond the need to protect brand and reputation, who are actually leading the way by building these metrics, by behaving responsibly, and then proving that they're behaving responsibly. I'd say you've got a good mix. I, I would say, obviously, in the last decade, uh, uh, there have been very impressive strides uh, made by big business in particular, and I'd like to include the US and Europe here, and mainly because of pressure from investors. Let's not forget that. I was interested, you mentioned the role of investors in driving this, and, and it's also in your book. Why are investors so keen to see the ESG movement? Yeah, I think the investors learned the hard way. This is very much a legacy of the global financial crisis, where you know the underlying faith and belief pre-2008 was big business can do no wrong. And, and indeed, we were all lulled into complacency between 2000 and 2008, you know, the global economy is chugging along well, that everyone is benefiting from uh, the fruits of globalization. And investors being on the front line where they're actually, they've actually put money into many of these large companies, which went bust in 2008, immediately creating this social backlash, where, for example, in the UK, the Archbishop of Canterbury started speaking about uh, executive pay, uh, which, you know, uh, there were a lot of complaints about executive pay before the 2008 period, but it became a hot-button social issue that, you know, how can you have these CEOs earning 200, 300 times the average pay uh, that a worker got in the company? So there was a greater focus on the social responsibility of business. And the social responsibility of business until that time was mainly about philanthropy and charity, that, you know, you had all these companies and, and, and you know, we can get into it if you want. I'm a strong uh, uh, critic of companies just simply wanting to plant trees, for example, but then doing considerable damage in their main operations. I think all of these converged due to the global financial crisis, where there was greater focus on social purpose of business. And I think investors being on the front line, I've got to remember many of these investors are large pension funds, be it in Europe or the US, uh, who, are, who are publicly run, uh, publicly owned in many cases, who actually felt that they can't, it cannot be business as usual. So they started demanding change, uh, uh, first in the rhetoric of company managements and boards, on defining social purpose, you know, so that exercise I was involved in 
say in the 2013-2015 period. And then immediately there was a cascading impact saying commitments rhetoric is not enough. We now move into hard data and facts. And I think investors want to feel assured that, the, and there have been many failures, notwithstanding having high ESG standards, we have to remember that there are major ESG failures happening at the same time, uh, which literally points to the complexity of running these large organizations and the fact that ESG is still widely misunderstood. You know, integrating this into strategy and operations is still a work in progress. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm happy that at least in terms of providing check and balances, we have a large investor community which is really focusing attention on this issue. That is interesting. And you mentioned the, the change in 2008 and your own personal experience. I wonder if you'd mind giving us a bit more of an insight into how you personally became involved with ESG. Well, I came into ESG uh, by accident. Thinking back, it probably was happenstance uh, at the same time. As a journalist, I started my career as a journalist in, in India. I worked in Singapore and Indonesia, so I've always been interested in social impact of business. Uh, my day job was covering business and finance and economics. And uh, I, was, I was greatly interested in how companies articulate it. And here we're talking about the 1990s and, and, and the early 2000s on how companies were defending themselves. And particularly in Indonesia, I saw the impact that large mining companies uh, can have on local communities and whether the steps taken by these large corporations uh, to mitigate and actually build positive social impact uh, was a big question mark in my mind. Uh, then I stepped away from journalism, uh, worked for the International Monetary Fund for many years. Obviously, front and center of that was sound macroeconomic policy, uh, followed by countries. Uh, does that drive better economic and social outcomes? So that's very much a 360-degree perspective on the role of business, on the role, obviously, of governments in driving positive political, social, and economic change. Uh, then I just went down to London, worked for a big international bank where I was running public policy. Yes, she came to me almost by accident. And it was that perfect time, in my view, where there was greater public awareness building up that it's simply not enough for the CEO of a company to report 25% uh, jump in profits quarter over quarter without worrying or without paying attention to what impact is the company having. Usually these multinational corporations have vast geographic footprints. Uh, they operate everywhere from you know Malawi, Mozambique, uh, into Canada and Mexico. So how do you begin to articulate uh, that what you're doing is overall a good thing for society? And, uh, you know, so that was the beginning of this investor-driven and public-driven movement to demand uh, companies define social purpose, to define their sustainability philosophy, and then actually go down to the weeds and build these data, you know, metrics and KPIs to prove that what they're doing can actually be seen tangibly. So I came into this, as I said, by accident. And, and it's been a fascinating decade. Obviously, ESG built up 
as a major force through the pandemic. There's a huge amount of backlash now, which we should discuss. But at the same time, I think the train kind of has left the station. Those who wish that companies should not focus on ESG issues are a bit too late to this because I think there's a clear consensus amongst big business, particularly younger staff working in these large companies and the society at large, that you know ESG should be centered on, on, on how you do business. You mentioned in your book kind of moving beyond, I think it was the Milton Friedman idea that companies, you know, simply do business. Uh, it's more than that. And it's not just enough that we work in a company and then do our good deeds in our private lives. It has to be connected. Yes, I mean, I, I, I first want to offer my due respects and apologies to Milton Friedman, <laughs> who, I, who I maybe harshly indict in the book. The Friedman Doctrine came at... Uh, different time and context, of course, in the early 1970s, uh, where there was active debate on what is the role of business, what is the role of government. And uh, Milton Friedman, you know, Nobel laureate, uh, incredible reputation, essentially wrote this doctrine which narrowed the scope and purpose of business to that of der deriving maximum shareholder returns. And he essentially said, CEOs have no business really moving away from their primary focus of generating profits uh, for their bosses, which are, which are shareholders. And the Friedman Doctrine has had this very powerful impact. Uh, uh, I mean, initially in the US and then, of course, uh, uh, spreading like a virus all over the world. And for, you know, until the global financial crisis, uh, the doctrine, the mantra of big business was, you know, we are here to serve, serve our shareholders. We will, of course, focus on this. I mean, I'm not suggesting that all businesses, therefore, uh, and I may mention this in the book, I mean, Friedman's intention uh, was certainly not that uh, big businesses' focus on profit should come at the expense of, you know, for example, completely destroying the environment, not paying attention to governance. He did not say that. But in placing the shareholder front and center of business, it had the unintended consequence of, first of all, CEOs expecting to be paid incredibly high amounts compared with the person on the shop floor. So there was this you know, 40, 47, 48 year period where big business became incredibly powerful the CEO class, they rewarded with uh, handsome returns. And at the same time, the backlash against globalization, uh, the backlash against uh, multinational corporations offshoring the business away from developed uh, countries began to gain momentum, right? So there's something there about the Friedman Doctrine that we shouldn't really be worried about. And, you know, and, and the fact that the ESG has kind of caught on at the moment signals that we've got to look at the Friedman Doctrine in the past, uh, not the present. And you mentioned, you know, the ESG train has left and there's since the pandemic, there's been a lot of discussion around that. Yes, you know, so what, like, so ESG and crypto are probably alike, where you had this huge jump in enthusiasm, uh, the sense that, uh, for example, crypto was essentially going to replace money as we know it then everyone was going to be on the blockchain. So there was this mania 
on crypto, there was mania separately on ESG. I think the differentiator in the ESG is, you know, ESG is both, as I said, a set of guidelines and metrics which help us understand how companies are behaving. Then ESG also became an asset class for investors where, you know, so you've got trillions of dollars now in uh, going into ESG-denominated mutual funds, uh, exchange-traded funds, and the like. And with the belief that, and maybe this is uh, counterintuitive, with the belief that companies with better ESG standards will generate more positive financial returns and more positive returns uh, for society. And this is not necessarily true across the board. And one, one should actually do a little bit more econometric research on whether companies which uh, follow or, or disclose better ESG metrics indeed are generating better value for shareholders. But the focus, and my point I'm making the book, the focus of the ESG enterprise should not be, I mean, it, it's great that you have this new investor class, asset class in ESG products, but that should not be the driving factor. We should come back to the basics where ESG is all about validating how a company is performing across environmental, social, governance metrics. And if, for argument's sake, companies with better ESG standards also happen to generate better financial returns, uh, then, then you know, there's obviously an investment uh, appetite out there which will be fulfilled. But we've kind of gotten lost in this thicket of misinformation and confusion that ESG is all about generating uh, better financial returns. Yeah, and I'm wondering if that's something to do with, say, timelines. You know, social change is slow, environmental change. We're talking the next 50 years uh, when I've been responsible for targets. You know, there's there's this week, there's this month, maybe this quarter. You tend not to have very long-term timelines. Absolutely. I mean, the climate emergency is upon us. And uh, I'm amused with this backlash against ESG with many, many folks out there saying, we simply should do away with this enterprise, right? So let's abolish ESG. Let business go back to basics, uh, which may be very, very tempting for many uh, corporate CEOs at this point in time. But the climate emergency is still going to continue. The world is still going to warm. And this unprecedented natural disasters, which we are beginning to see all over the world, and not just the developing world in the US and Europe too, should give us a sense that one simple metric uh, for companies achieving net zero target in their emissions is, a, is incredibly important, and we should not forget that. And of course, it goes across a range of industries. It's a lot easier for some industries to go carbon neutral than others. Absolutely, right. So let's take a look at the big polluters, right? So it be oil and gas, it's steel, it is cement. And the oil and gas industry have had their, uh, have taken the classic ostrich pose for many, many decades. And, you know, let's be, let's grudgingly acknowledge that many of them have now seen the light of day. And many of them have announced decarbonization plans. But in my view, you can't simply blame the oil and gas companies. And the consumers have a role, governments have a role, 
how are we going to wean ourselves of our addiction to oil and gas as a consumer, right? So we should be thinking about our personal choices in what are we doing to contribute to positive change rather than campaign against only oil and gas companies who've kind of become you know, the 1960 classic born villains of our time, right, of this of this time. They're all seen as cigar-chomping, out-of-touch CEOs. But at the same time, we are, as consumers, adding immensely to the problem by continuing to drive these uh, petrol cars. They exist because of our demand. Absolutely. So consumer habits also have to change. Then there are sectors like steel and uh, cement where you know carbon emissions are harder to abate. I think there's some positive news on steel, on the production of, you know, reducing the energy intensity in producing a ton of steel, which which hopefully will uh, gain momentum, and that's 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 an overall good. But I do worry about cement, uh, which is a critical building block in many developing countries. Right, if you want a small developing country emerging out of poverty uh, to develop, what do they use uh, to build the infrastructure? They need to build cement. So it's very easy for us living in rich countries to take this purest approach. But you know cement production should cease completely. Uh, so then if you begin to acknowledge that you need to build multiple pathways where large developed nations who've been able to grow rapidly on this uh, carbon industrial complex for many, many decades, they kind of take the lead on this green pathway and give the space, the climate space, for other developing countries to embark on a similar journey, perhaps with an extended timeline. That's really interesting. Yeah, traveling through mainland China, you do see whole cities arising out of, genuinely out of the rice paddies, uh, entirely made of concrete. Can I ask perhaps why is concrete so damaging for, for the environment? Yeah, I think it's the production rather than the use of cement. And emissions from a typical cement manufacturing clinker and because it's fine particles and because mainly you're quarrying limestone and converting limestone into into cement and it's the emission of those fine particles uh, which lead to significantly higher emissions uh, compared with other manufacturing processes. Now there is talk of you know building or innovating uh, what people have describing as green cement I haven't seen any strong evidence on whether that can be scaled uh, massively so that we begin to replace uh, conventional cement with green cement. But you know, if you accept the proposition that uh, in order to grow, a developing country has to build housing, has to build infrastructure, then you need to focus on. And you know, one metric which is very important for us to remember: we're you know, Africa in totality only contributes to 4% of global emissions, right? So 4% is a rounding error in the billions and billions of carbon in tons that other countries emit. So I think there is a possibility of allowing these small developing countries, uh, give them a little bit more time to obviously build the foundations of economic uh, growth and then begin to pivot away from uh, carbon. 
Thank you very much. And uh, you mentioned the green cement. There has been the criticism of, say, some companies supposedly greenwashing. Um, if I can ask two questions at once, what is greenwashing and how do we know it when we see it? So green, greenwashing is not a manufacturing process. <laughs> it, is, it is manufactured uh, internally by companies in order to label certain things that they do. Uh, right, so greenwashing can manifest itself in many ways. Uh, take, for example, uh, a company raising uh, money through a green bond. And then, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars worth of green bonds are raised every year. Uh, the frustration has been that in certain jurisdictions, the rules are still not very clear. That if, you, if you're raising money, say, if you're raising $100 million on a green bond, Presumably, you're going to use that $100 million for green purposes. Right? So you, you cannot have a situation where an oil and gas company is raising green bonds because that's the most dramatic example of greenwashing where you're using an asset class primarily meant to help with the carbon transition is actually going into a sector which is accelerating global warming. Right. So there, there are definitional issues. There, are actual, there is actual malpractice, uh, which, which a lot of people are now focusing attention on. And then you've got claims and promises made by companies. Coming back to my earlier point on why ESG metrics is really important, claims made by companies that they're embarking on a decarbonization journey where the facts are massaged and presented in a way which puts the company in a positive light, right? So greenwashing has many, many characteristics. And again, it's front and center, I think, for regulators to define better standards when companies issue green products, when companies articulate their decarbonization plans. So regulation has an important role to play. Investors and consumers at the same time also have an important role to play. But I would place the greater burden here on regulators to come up with better standards. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. Can I ask why? Uh, well, you've seen, for example, in the climate space, I mean, one, one dramatic example of better regulation is in the climate space, if you're a large corporation or international bank operating in Europe or the US, you will get captured by what is known in the trade as TCFT. It basically stands for the task force on climate-related disclosures. These are a set of standards developed by regulators globally, and now it's cascading down nationally in many countries, which demand that international banks, for example, disclose more about their exposure to carbon, disclose more, and these are obviously tangible financial numbers uh, that we're talking about. We're not talking about vague statements of intent. And this is really, really, this has helped, I think, and, and obviously TCFD is not being implemented globally, but nevertheless, it's being implemented in the most important markets where carbon emissions have historically been a problem. And so it is quite possible that through rigorous regulation and supervision, that maybe in five years, 10 years' time, you'll begin to see that the shape of balance sheets of international banks move away from carbon-intensive activities 
into more green activities. Right. So that's why I think regulation is absolutely central to demanding change. This sentiment is not accepted widely, for example, in the US, where uh, regulation is seen as a burden. And this, of course, the differing philosophies in the US. It's, the Friedman Doctrine is still alive and well in many parts of the US, for example. And the notion that you can let companies uh, self-regulate on this very important issue, I don't think there's brought public support for that sentiment anymore. Kind of touches on the, the one last pillar that I haven't really asked you about, ESG, environmental, uh, social, but also governance. Yeah, governance is, you know, an absolutely qualitative uh, and, and there's a bit of quantitative as well. In how are companies actually managing and reporting on these ESG risks? And, you know, governance also obviously has other focuses, right? You, you worry about uh, whether the top team in companies are the right fit, whether particular companies' financial reporting is up to scratch, and whether the company's you know, overall management team is delivering value. But when it comes to the ESG space, right, so the question to ask is, okay, you've got these environmental social metrics, KPIs, and ambition laid out very clearly. The question to ask is, how are you managing this positively, and how are you managing these risks? And and when these risks arise, and you know, I think one, one should be reasonable and admit that any companies with the best ESG metrics and standards will still face risks, will still face damaging events. And that's where governance becomes critical, where, you know, how you manage and mitigate those risks. Indeed, where does ESG sit in a company's risk framework? Now, this this is all, this may come across as inside cricket or inside baseball, depending on where you're listening to this podcast from. But it is very important, right? I think uh, uh, the risk function plays a very important role in managing ESG risks. Until recently, they've been very reluctant because uh, this is not a topic that they're used to dealing with. They typically deal with financial and credit-related and operational risks. Uh, but embedding these ESG risks as part of their risk universe, uh, it's beginning to happen. So all of this comes down to when, when people say good governance. Uh, good governance is how you manage risks across the spectrum. Thank you very much. I feel that's solid, solid intro to ESG. And um, it's not going away, is it? <laughs> it's here to stay. I mean, it's going away from my hands into the hands of readers, having written the book. And and obviously, readers, I hope, will read the book, uh, develop strong views, positive or negative. Uh, but I think the important thing is to participate in that public debate on how relevant this is uh, for the difficult times that we are living in. That makes me wonder if... For those who read your book, what is one thing you'd like them to do afterwards? The one thing that I'd like them to do afterwards after reading the book is if they're an investor, to pay more attention to how companies are behaving responsibly. If you're a consumer, don't just walk into a store and walk out with, with jeans or, or even a bottle of whiskey. Just take the time to understand where the product was produced, how it was produced, and whether there are any social risks associated with the products. 
we, we forget, you know, buying toothpaste, buying shaving cream, indeed buying whiskey. These are random acts that we carry out every single day. Um, we don't pause for a moment and think about, you know, how did this product get to the shelf? Many consumers are paying attention to that. But I think a more socially aware and conscious consumer class will lead, I think, instinctively to better ESG performance and governance without, right? I mean, for the libertarians on this call, if, if that simple act happens, there won't be a need for heavy-handed regulation. I can tell you, I have been reading your book. My last purchase was a tie. I can't name the brand on this podcast, but I will say it is a company very well known for its very good ESG. That's wonderful. Good to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about Vasuki Shastri and for a transcript of today's episode, please see our show notes on our website. I would like to thank Nick Warwick and Daniel Ridge for their help with today's episodes and also Alec Jungus from This Is Distorted. You've been listening to the Emerald Podcast Series. <laughs>